I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. Um, If you've been with us over these last several months, you'll know that we are making our way through um, this early Christian narrative, um, the book of Acts. And today we come to another pivotal scene. The gospel is going to travel via Paul in his ministry to the city of Ephesus. And we're going to read about that in Acts chapter 19. And as is our custom, we'll be pairing this reading with the reading from the opposite testament. In this case tonight, I'll be reading from Isaiah chapter 44. So I'm going to read Isaiah chapter 44, our sermon text. And then I'm going to add a few extra readings, words that the the same Apostle Paul will later write to the Christians who ended up becoming established in Ephesus. So would you listen closely and carefully to all of these um, God's words to us and for us tonight from Isaiah chapter 44. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I'm the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. And from Acts chapter 19 beginning in verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No. We have not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. He said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jew and Greek. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons 
of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit, the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is the word of the Lord. And I'm going to add a few more from Ephesians. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places? Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. And then from chapter 6, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. Once again, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, in your kindness and in your mercy, we ask in these moments that you would do for us the thing that only you can do. Would you take these words um, that are here in your word, would you take the words that I have prepared, and would you use them both, Lord, to great effect in our hearts and our souls. And I pray that we, in particular tonight, could leave with such deep joy, Lord, having remembered the victory of our Lord Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So at our house, the Busby residence, not very far from here, um, we have a carport that is in the back of our house. Many of you have been to my house and you'll know of this carport. Um, it's a particularly beefy carport. Um, the beams are these big, solid, like, like more than is necessary, thick steel beams. The pylons are big and thick. I mean, you would think whoever assembled this carport you know, in the 1960s had, you know, stock or some kind of working relationship in U.S. Steel. 
That's actually true. We've done the research. They did. It's steel. It has a tin roof, metal upon metal upon more metal of various kinds. And the Busbys, we have electrical power that runs in this carport. We have an outlet to plug things in. There's some lights. And, and, and this is where the narrative begins to go wrong because I have said metal and I've said electrical power. Um, there was one time somewhat recently when I got out of my car and just in the course of events, I happened to, to touch one of the metal poles and I, and I felt kind of like a, a tingling feeling and I didn't think much of it um, and just went about my day, my business not too much longer, my kids said to me, Dad, when we touched the beams of the carport, it was tingly. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes kids get tingly feelings in their limbs, you know? <laughs> Who knows? Um, there was another time where it seemed as if the tingly feeling was, was growing in intensity. Um, our dog climbed up a little retaining wall and got onto the roof, as is her custom, and she started whimpering and kind of... And kind of, kind of, um, yeah, it's tough, right? Um, <laughs> another time I touched one of the metal beams and it, and it felt like the tingy, tingly feeling was starting to shake me a little bit and kind of grow in intensity. And then I, I, I let it go. And, and the truth of the matter, okay, is that there was, there was something we did not know or maybe did not understand that did, in fact, or could have most certainly created for us a very dangerous situation. Now, thinking about that this week um, reminds me of what Paul, the apostle, experiences that we learn about in this passage in Acts chapter 19. See, Paul is coming with the good news of Jesus to Ephesus. I'll say more about this in a minute. But Ephesus in particular in the Greek and Roman world was a city coursing with power. Spiritual power. I'll say more about this in a minute, but it was a center of occultic and demonic worship practices. And the city is, is charged literally with spiritual power. It's just that the powers who think they're in power in Ephesus have another thing coming. Because there is something they do not yet know or understand that in fact creates a very dangerous situation for them. And the thing they don't yet know and the thing they don't yet understand that Paul is here to proclaim, that, that seven exorcists learn the hard way, is that there is one and his name is Jesus and he holds all power, all authority. He rules and reigns over this world and not just this world, but this world. And this world. That's the main thing I have come to tell you today. Okay? It's the main thing I want you to hear. That's what the sermon is about. It's about the fact that Jesus Christ has power above all powers. He has all the power. 
all the authority. He rules and he reigns. This should strike you today as very good news. So we're going to unfold this together in the time we have. Now to get there, to get to this scene within the scene in particular where demonic powers come to understand what's going on truly... We're going to talk about a few other things because Acts chapter 19 is unique. It's a unique scene. But, but in this scene, it gives us the pattern of how things tend to go when the gospel goes into a new place. So throughout the book of Acts, when the gospel travels into the new place, when, when Christ is proclaimed, we find people who are baptized. We see the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. We see opposition against the move of Christ. And then we see Christ's power prevailing. And and this scene will give me a chance to say a little bit more about some things I really haven't said a lot about. I haven't said much about baptism as we've gone. And I have not said much about the the Spirit's power, particularly the the signs and wonders power that accompanies the work of the Spirit. So we're going to just take a look at a few different things. We're going to look at baptism. We're going to look at the Spirit's power. We're going to make our way to this opposition to Jesus and Jesus' power overall. So it's, it's important to me that you kind of have a sense of, of where I'm going with it as I begin to talk to you. Um, I strive, I try really hard to be as clear as I can. So I want to give you that outline in advance. So let's take a look together. Look with me at verses 3. Through five. I'm sorry, verse, we'll start with verse one. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And then verses three to five. And he said, Into what? Then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. So when Paul arrives at Ephesus, he he finds an interesting situation. There are a group of people, they're called disciples here in verse 1, but you might say they're not complete yet. They don't have the full picture. This is kind of a a weird overlap, if you will, in salvation history, okay? That, That there were people who had received of the ministry of John the Baptist. They had even been baptized in the name of John the Baptist, which was a baptism which was like a purification ritual of sorts to have Jewish people be ready for the Messiah's arrival. And these believers or these part believers or these disciples of John the Baptist happen to be in Ephesus and they just haven't heard the full story yet. They they don't know that Christ the Messiah has indeed come and Paul has to tell them. I I find it kind of humorous. Um, He asked them in verse 2, had they received the Holy Spirit? And get this, they didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. When I was in seminary, that seemed funny to me. Um, more funny to me than to you, and that's, that's fine. Um, they, don't, they don't understand. The Spirit has not been poured out yet when they become um, disciples of John. 
But now Paul's on the scene and has to remind them. Um, John has actually passed. His ministry has passed, and Jesus is now here. And there is a, a spirit that has been poured out. And look at what ends up happening. Verse 5, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying, and there were about 12 men in all. So Paul comes with the message of the gospel. He, if you will, completes their journey of belief by preaching to them Christ. They're baptized, and then they're filled with the Spirit. Some scholars call this the Ephesian Pentecost. There's 12 of them that were filled that were told about, so it's a, a number of completion. In other words, there's a complete, now witnessing, full-orbed Christian community now established here in Ephesus. So I want to just take a couple minutes and talk briefly about baptism. I want to talk briefly about the Spirit and the Spirit's being poured out and the kinds of things we can expect from the person and work of the Spirit, briefly. First, let's talk baptism. Dotted throughout the Acts narrative, there's, there's tons of examples of people being baptized. There's, there's massive public baptisms. This happens in Acts chapter 2. The gospel is preached, thousands come to Christ, and there's a, there's a public baptism that happens there in Jerusalem. There are what you might call private baptisms, where, this, where the message of the gospel comes and, and someone learns and, and wants to be baptized right then somewhat privately. If you can remember um, Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch, what prevents me from being baptized? Well, let's just baptize you right now. In the book of Acts, I mentioned some things about this last week. There are household baptisms. We're told that an entire family unit comes to faith in Christ and our baptized. We have this scene, which is the only scene in all of scripture where somebody is rebaptized. But see, it wasn't really a rebaptism because really just a first baptism because the John baptism wasn't a Christian baptism. It makes sense, right? So let's think a little bit about baptism together. All, all Christian traditions agree on a few things related to baptism. Um, number one, baptism is the entrance right into the Christian community. Okay, when someone comes to faith in Christ, baptism is their entrance rite, R-I-T-E. It's the ritual, the entrance ritual. Um, it's the entrance ritual into Christian community, whereas the table, the Lord's Supper, would be the ongoing sort of sustaining ritual. Does that make sense? We're baptized once, but we feed on this table weekly. It's the sustaining rite or ritual of Christian faith and practice. So it's the entrance rite. Um, all parts of the Christian tradition agree that baptism is a sign and a seal of Christ's work for us. Um, when someone goes into the water of baptism, it's, it's a sign and a seal of the cleansing work that Christ has done for sinners. Um, when somebody goes into the, into the waters of baptism, it's a sign and the seal of this, this union that we have with Jesus. The scriptures will teach us that we're baptized into Christ. We're united with him. And, and baptism becomes the sign and the seal of that uniting work that Christ has done. Um, here's a third thing. 
Um, baptism serves as a sort of visual sermon. Okay, it's a, it's a proclamation act. When Christians baptize people, it's our way of taking things that are sometimes said and allowing it to be seen. Okay? See, our God's kind to us. He gives us not just words, but he even gives us pictures. Just like when we come to this table, it takes the words we've heard about Christ giving himself for us and gives us something we can see and taste and touch. Baptism is like that. It's a proclamation. Now, now different um, parts of the Christian tradition baptize in different ways. There's the credo-baptist tradition. Okay, that is what Grace Fellowship practices. That we reserve baptism for those who profess faith in Jesus. There's also the paedo-baptism tradition, which is the tradition of, of baptizing um, um, infants, like children of believing parents, into Christ. Um, both kinds of ways of viewing baptism, by the way, use the book of Acts to bolster sort of their views on baptism. Um, at Grace Fellowship, we have something of what we hope to be like a unifying view with that. I mean, the scriptures teach that there's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism. So, you know, for those who've been baptized as infants, we, we give you the chance to affirm that baptism and become members of Grace Fellowship versus others who are baptized as professing believers also can be members of Grace Fellowship. This is kind of what baptism is, and we see it right here. We see the gospel come and baptism happen. It's, it's part of a pattern. And here's a, here's a second thing that happens. The Holy Spirit is poured out, and in this case, the Spirit's being poured out is accompanied, in this case, in verse 6, with tongues and prophesying. Again, this is a pattern at Pentecost when the Spirit's poured out. Um, there's signs and wonders that accompany that pouring out. And this is what we get here. Um, now, I want to say just a couple of brief words about the person and work of the Spirit. There's so many things we could say. I want to say just a, a couple of things. Um, the Spirit and the Spirit's work is, is, to me, it's helpful to understand the Spirit's work um, as um, applying the work of Jesus. So if we think in a Trinitarian fashion, the Father wills, the Son, Jesus, accomplishes, and the Spirit then makes application to hearts and souls. Now, God is, is one, so it's, it's not as simple as, as one of them does a job then the other one does the job. It's not like that. They all are acting as one, though three persons. But to me, that's a, a helpful way to think about it. The Father wills, the Son accomplishes, the Spirit applies. And when we see the work, the, the miraculous work of the Spirit in a book like Acts, you'll notice it's, it's always about applying Christ's work to the person. It's not about power and vibes and feelings as much as it's about exalting, extolling Jesus and applying his work. And in the book of Acts, whenever the gospel travels into a new place in particular, the miraculous tends to travel with it. And I think that tells us just a couple of things. Number one, I think it tells us that when we see tongues and, and prophesying and the miraculous work of the Spirit in the book of Acts, I think it, I think it helps us to remember that this is, this is extraordinary. It's, it's beyond what is normal. 
But at the same time, I think it helps us realize that we can still expect the Spirit to be working in this way. All of Acts is a book of, of patterns showing us the way God works in this world. So we have baptism, we have the pouring out of the Spirit, and then we have, again, it's a pattern, opposition. So look with me at verse 8. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So Paul is proclaiming the gospel here, and he's doing it in Ephesus, and we should see and we should understand Paul to be going into a dark place with the light of the gospel. I said this earlier at the beginning of this sermon. Ephesus is a particular spiritually powerful place. You know, I mentioned this last week, but if Rome is Washington, D.C., and, New, and, and Corinth is New York City, um, Ephesus is kind of like New Orleans. And, and I mean that sincerely. If you've traveled to New Orleans and, you, and you've been in the, in the square where the fortune tellers have their tables lined up, when you think of some of the debaucherous things that happen on the streets right around that area, Ephesus was a lot like that. There was a temple. And, and from this temple to, to the god Artemis, there's all these little alleyways and roads that spilled out behind, beyond the temple. And, and there were tables set up where there were fortune tellers and, and, and there were card readers and, and all kinds of pagan and demonic and occultic practices happened all around that area. Um, it was, it was a, a spiritually dark place. And what we're going to see is that the gospel will go into that dark place and just continue to succeed and advance. So look at verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs of aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. So these, these wonders are being done by the power of the Spirit. And it's even more unusual that even things that Paul had physically touched would have the healing power of the Spirit associated with them. It's interesting that, that we get no hint that Paul was selling those things because that's what would have happened in Ephesus, see? Little things would have been sold claiming to have spiritual power. But people are taking these things, and it's, it's unusual, Paul writes to these same Christians in Ephesus later and says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against the powers. And what we're seeing is, is Paul having somewhat of a full-on assault against the devil as he is preaching and proclaiming and, and doing these miracles by the power of the Spirit in Ephesus. Paul is coming after the darkness. And it's really easy to forget that part of a Christian call Christian mission is to go into dark places with the light of the gospel. 
You know, I think for us, it's just easy to think that the Christian experience is sort of just doing your thing throughout the week, going to work, doing what you do, and then showing up to, to, to worship and then going to do your thingy. And we sometimes forget about the, the taking light into darkness part of what it means to be a Christian. And, and we see that here. And the whole point of the story is Christ's power over this darkness. Look at verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. This is interesting because apparently some, some of the Jewish, uh, these guys are, are sons of a Jewish priest and they're exorcists. So, so they're living in Ephesus and they're even in on some of the occultic stuff. And here's what they're saying. I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. This word adjure is unique. It's more of a word that would be used in a magic incantation of some kind. So they're, they're doing pagan stuff with the name of Jesus attached to it. Verse 14, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. So they're trying to cast out a demon using Jesus' name. And in one of the more bizarre scenes in the New Testament, look at what happens. The evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know. And Paul, I've even heard of. But who are you? The language is strong. It's, it's but who do you think that you are? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered them. It means he, he wrestled them. He, the, spirit, the evil spirit literally beats up these guys, bloodies them, overpowers them. They flee out of the house naked. They've been stripped naked and wounded. What? What? And I think Luke tells us this story to help us realize that the name of Jesus is powerful, but the name of Jesus is not a magic trick. See, these sons of Siva, they don't get it. They have Christ all wrong. See, in a city pulsing with spiritual power and longing, they think Jesus is simply just an option among all those things. They think his name can be used as a magic trick. But don't forget that this is the Jesus who we, we just read from Ephesians has the name that is above every name that is, that is far above every name that's being named. And all rival powers and authorities are being brought under his feet. This is Jesus we're talking about. We're not talking about one spiritual Option among lots of spiritual options. And all power belongs to this Jesus. See, in the New Testament, demons are afraid of Jesus' name. They're not afraid of people who use Jesus' name as if it's a magic trick. And y'all, I've thought deeply about this this week. Because see, part of what a sermon's supposed to do is move from the cool story, so what, to what does that mean for us today? 
And I don't quite know what to say at this point. But what I do know is there is a way of us hanging around the things of Christ, looking for some kind of spiritual power from being involved in Christian things that comes pretty far afield from from knowing Jesus, worshiping him, yielding to him. I wonder if you know what I mean by that. I mean, I know I can go about a week doing Christianish things, feeling spiritual power and experiences. But, but sometimes I wonder if it falls short of the ways in which in this book, the book of Acts, calls us to yield the totality of who we are to him. And that's what we see next. These, these people who, who see this power, they see Christ's power, not one option among many. We see, they see Christ's power and they repent. Verse 18, and many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. They counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. In other words, this is costly and expensive repentance. This is costly and expensive yielding to the Lord. In the next scene, there's a riot that happens because people are turning to Christ and the people who make these little trinkets, these occultic trinkets, are losing money. In other words, it's costly repentance. But in verse 20, we learn that the word of the Lord just continues to prevail against all powers. You know, Christ Jesus has all power, all authority, Jesus Christ himself is the name that is above every name. He has no rival. He has no equal. There is no other weak thing that you could devote your heart and soul to that compare to Jesus and his worth. Christ has all power. So what? This is where I want to just conclude by speaking to your heart as directly as I can. There's a a good amount of people in here tonight, and you're you're human persons who live in a broken world. You live in an age that is, the scriptures teach us, that is, is ruled by evil, or at least it seems to be. And evil in the scriptures takes on a couple different forms. I mean, there's the world, the pressures that we feel just living in this world. The world presses us. See, but evil in the Bible is more complicated than just a world pressing us. It's also our own fleshly appetites and desires. They constantly lure us away from loyalty to Jesus. And it's even more complicated than that because the scriptures teach us that, that evil has a real life 
person attached to it who's, who's called Satan, the, the accuser, the devil, who actually is like a roaring lion that seeks ways to destroy, eat, um, overwhelm, discourage you all the time. It's always happening. It's never not happening. In other words, you're a person. You're living in the world that I live in, which means that I cannot even possibly know tonight the ways that you might feel weak, weary, powerless, out of control, uncertain, vulnerable, afraid, tired, deeply fearful. If that's you tonight, I actually don't have a, a power to tell you to channel. But instead, what we have here tonight is a person that I want to announce and declare to you. Not a spiritual power, one power among all powers, but a person named Jesus. And this Jesus Christ, I'm just going to say it really plainly, has all authority in heaven and on earth it belongs to him. He's the name that is above every name. Every other rival name that is named in this world, this is Paul's language in Ephesians, is currently at this very moment being brought under his feet. This is Jesus we're talking about. The one to whom and for whom and through whom are all things, and in him all things hold together. This is Jesus we're talking about, the one that the writer to the Hebrews says is the exact imprint of God's nature. And he upholds the universe at this very moment by the word of his power. This is Jesus we're talking about, the one who says in the book of Revelations, in the book of Revelation, I am the first and I am the last. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Jesus Christ rules the world. But here's the thing about Jesus that is so unspeakably good to hear. This one who has all power and authority is not the kind that you have to be afraid that you'll get shocked. And we live like that. We live fearful. I remember when I was a young kid, I used to think that if I didn't quite do something right with regard to Christ, I'd get something bad to happen to me. And that's not the Jesus we're talking about. Because this Jesus, the scriptures teach us, the one who has all power and authority, also is a sympathetic high priest, able to sympathize with you in every place of weakness. This Jesus, the one who has all power, also went to the cross to prove to you that the most powerful being on the whole universe is also at the same time the most kind. And in his cross, he defeats the power of death and darkness. In his resurrection, he is very, very alive. In the pouring out of his spirit, he gives you a helper who's close and can bring comfort to you. In his ascension, he rules and he reigns, proving that the most powerful person in the universe also happens to be the person most for you ruling and reigning and praying for you even now. This Jesus, who has all authority, is returning to crush evil and sin and death forever. And this Jesus, who has all power, who's done all these things for you and for me, is seeking your total allegiance. 
And even that is a kindness. The more you follow Jesus, the more you realize that the more you yield to him, the more joy you receive. If you need strength, if you need power, there is a power and his name is Jesus. He's unlike any other. He's not for sale. And you can have him. You can have his strength even now. And his strength is always made most perfect in your places of weakness.